0: This is a multi-system disorder, and so I'm sure we could probably identify other medical conditions that sort of fall between the different specialties. And so it can be difficult when, you know, there may be a a neurological piece or a cardiology piece or an immunology piece, and who really has ownership of it? And that can be a problem sort of driving research standpoint, but also from a funding uh, standpoint where, you know, like funding through in the United States through the National Institute of Health is in certain, you know, silos. That is a problem. Welcome to the
1: Metagenics Institute podcast a place where you can hear from the leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognised clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host, Nathan Rose. Hi everybody, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and today I'm thrilled to be discussing this tricky topic of dysautonomia. And to help me with this is Dr. Brent Goodman from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Good afternoon, Brent. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So dysautonomia and POTS as well, which as I understand a a subset of dysautonomia is, a, as I said, a tricky condition. And I found you on the dysautonomia Autonomia International Organization website as one of the advocates there. So before we dive into dysautonomia, I'm curious on, as a neurologist, um, there's obviously many conditions that you see and treat. How is it um, that you felt that it was important to um, align yourself and support dysautonomia?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, I... I would be lying if I would, if I were to say that it was, um, initially, uh, the strategic plan for my career. Um, I, my training is, as you mentioned, is as a neurologist, um, I was trained in, uh, neurophysiology and neuromuscular, uh, neurology by background with a bit of background in the autonomic nervous system. Uh, Mayo Clinic has, a. uh, uh. Strong legacy in autonomic disorders, and um, uh, but essentially uh, sort of evolved into this role, um, running our autonomic clinic and laboratory here in Arizona, um, uh, to try to help these folks, uh, try to understand the condition as best as we uh, we can, and at this point, interested in sort of helping to move the field forward um and as you mentioned earlier advocacy advocacy is a an important part of that um unfortunately it's a an underfunded under-researched and most certainly uh not optimally understood uh yeah. condition is pots for sure yeah so do you um
1: exclusively see disorder named at the moment is um, or, or it might um take a step back? Do you recall seeing cases early on in your career, and that piqued your interest as well from a, a clinician's perspective?
0: Well, um, I've been seeing POTS patients now for oh, probably sixteen, seventeen years. Um, I see a lot. I see a whole host of other uh, neurological conditions, but primarily in the space of. Neuromuscular disorders and uh, other autonomic uh, nervous system dysfunction. Aside from POTS, the the unfortunate thing really is is that, and we'll talk about it later. POTS is is extremely common. We don't know exactly how common, but other autonomic disorders are also common as well. Um, orthostatic hypotension, for example, um, which is different than POTS, which is where you know, the blood pressure drops essentially withstanding. Um the prevalence of that, the frequency of that once folks get up into their sixties, seventies, and eighties approaches thirty percent. Right. Um, so that you know, that that disorder just in and of itself is also very common. Um, so there are a lot of patients with autonomic dysfunction um walking around out there and I guess fainting out there. Mm. Um, as a result of their autonomic dysfunction, and yeah, describe the
1: impact this has because obviously it doesn't. It's not nice feeling lightheaded, and and okay, I imagine occasionally it might be frequently fainting, um, but that's bad enough, I'm sure. But it seems um, these symptoms and the expression affects the patient and has a, a pretty uh, big impact on the quality of life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, if one considers, uh, POTS, um, quality of life scores in a POTS patient, they're similar to other conditions like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in terms of how they negatively affect one's quality of life. So these are life altering, uh, uh, conditions and can you know, interfere with people's ability to um, go to school and the youngsters and then ultimately maybe go to college um, and then certainly um, can make employment difficult and for some impossible. Um, POTS is, we actually don't know exactly how common it is. Um, some people certainly um, go um, undiagnosed um, it's been estimated that upwards of perhaps as high as 1% of the general population and between sort of teens to 50s may have POTS. May, um, it may not be that high, but we really don't know. There are great um, uh, uh, natural history type type studies uh, for us to know that with, with certainty um but much more common in females than males um and it's a it is a disorder of the young uh for reasons not entirely clear um often begins in the teens but can begin in 20s 30s rarely in the 40s and and 50s um and yeah can really uh really be devastating uh for for individuals suffering from this they'll often about 40-50% of people will have their disorder begin uh following an infection of some sort um these days uh of course everybody's thinking and talking about covid mm. um and we certainly do see um pots and other forms of dysautonomia following with or following covid um but even putting that aside about any type of infection can lead to uh, an autonomic disorder, including a flu, uh, what seems like just a even a modest upper respiratory tract infection, um, GI bug, etc. cetera. So that's quite a common mechanism, likely in people who for some reason are vulnerable. Um, we could talk about what some of those vulnerabilities seem to be. Uh, But that's a common sort of mechanism of onset uh, that we see, the most common, certainly. Other folks may have symptoms that begin following a surgery. Um, Following concussion is uh, not uncommon, uh, particularly in youngsters, um, having their POTS begin following a a, a brain injury of some sort. Um, And then in others, there's no clear a uh, reason or or obvious precipitant uh, of for their condition to have begun. Yeah. Interesting. A lot of questions there.
1: But, um, I might circle back to those in a moment. It probably was worth just um, defining pots and dysautonomia and maybe describing some of the the symptoms.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, dysautonomia. Um, one wants to think of as, as I think you mentioned earlier, as sort of an umbrella term. Um, And so it basically just implies that there's um, an impairment of the autonomic nervous system. Um, So a general umbrella term under which POTS is one disorder um, that would be considered a dysautonomia. It can be a little bit tricky, that the nomenclature, because some people will use Dysautonomia synonymously with POTS. And it really shouldn't be used uh, that way. You know, we try, if possible, to define um, what people have. But, you know, obviously, when we're seeing patients in clinic, um, you may not always know exactly what a person has until you do the testing, which we can talk about. But um, I tell my patients, um, you know, how we think about the autonomic nervous system. This is the body's um, automatic system for responding to internal and external stressors, and it influences, but also is influenced by all of the body's other organ systems. So an individual with POTS um, and other forms of dysautonomia can have a multitude of different uh, symptoms that result from impairment of the different autonomic systems. So POTS is defined, there's specific criteria for POTS. So POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or some people just say postural tachycardia syndrome is a little bit redundant, saying postural and orthostatic. Um, but uh, it's a condition where the criteria at present are that we are looking for an excessive increase in heart rate, with standing, or with the tilt table study within 10 minutes. And so that increase in heart rate in adults, people 18 and older, is exceeds 30 beats per minute, going from lying to standing or lying to head up tilt. Now, the important piece of that, too, is that we don't see a drop in blood pressure with that increase in heart rate. So there's an absence of orthostatic hypotension. So that's an important part of the criteria. And then another big Im- important part of the criteria is that people have postural symptoms. So what we ask them is, do you have symptoms that are present when you're upright that get better or go away when you sit or lay down? Because not everybody, particularly if they've had symptoms for a while, will recognize yeah. that, that they have an autonomic disorder. You know, they, they may feel weak when they're upright, or they may feel, quote-unquote, dizzy. They don't really know what that means or really think about it. Um, so those are the POTS criteria. Now, in youngsters, so folks 17 and younger, we're looking for a 40 beat per minute increase in heart rate, and that's, again, within 10 minutes of standing or, or, or tilting the patient up on a, on a tilt table. So those are the criteria uh, that we're looking for with POTS people don't have to have a formal tilt table or formal autonomic testing in order to establish the diagnosis. It can be made, you know, by uh, an individual healthcare provider uh, doing um, just postural vital signs in the office, doing those um, uh, supine and then, you know, standing uh, blood pressure and heart rate measurements. Um, Symptom-wise, um, I sort of I like to I like to be very systematic in how I think about these disorders, and so the autonomic systems are um, can be broken down into adrenergic, which is basically blood pressure and heart rate control. Yep. Sweating. Um, so you know controlling thermoregulation that's an autonomic function, obviously. Um, GI function uh the pupils, so pupillary dilation, constriction, and then uh genitourinary function, bla- uh bladder function. And so when we're evaluating a person with a suspected autonomic disorder, we'll take that careful autonomic review of systems and try to inventory what systems are involved, uh to what extent. Um, and you know, then that that important history, that important review of systems, then, sort of provides the the platform for a diagnostic studies, and then ultimately, what needs to be done from a, a treatment perspective. Right. Thank you. And what about? There's a lot of associated
1: comorbidities, and it sounds like a syndrome. There's high prevalence of migraine and um, autoimmunity and EHS and so forth. Can you describe the sort of this cluster, which yeah sounds like that has a huge impact on quality of life as well.
0: Yeah that's a a great uh, a great point super important point and really is actually one of the challenges um there are many challenges in evaluating and treating individuals with pots in particular and that is this idea of these comorbidities i mentioned earlier that the autonomic system of course controls multiple systems within the body but it's also important to recognize, I think, you know, us as clinicians, I think of the autonomic nervous system, it's it's a check engine light, actually. Um, at least that's how I interpret it. So, you know, for example, um, just those of us without a dysautonomia, if we decide that we're not going to sleep for the next day or two... Um, our autonomic nervous systems are going to be irritable as a result of that to sort of keep us awake and alive, if you will. And so that's an important way to think about things. And so why that's important is these comorbidities influence the autonomic nervous system, and there's sort of this relationship where they can aggravate dysautonomia, and dysautonomia can aggravate them. So the important comorbidities are, um, as you suggested, Uh, headaches and migraine, Um, migraines are present in most POTS patients, quite honestly. Um, uh, It's unusual for somebody to not have a history of migraine. Um, It's pretty common, in fact, in our POTS clinics for us to see chronic migraine, which is defined as uh, 16 or more headache or migraine headache days per month. That's actually quite common in, in, in POTS patients and something that we have to tackle, quite honestly, to get POTS better. Um, suboptimal sleep, as I was alluding to earlier, um, some patients just sleep very poorly, so that can be important to recognize and manage. Um, you mentioned, I believe, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, um, so a connective tissue disorders, which is a hypermobile uh, condition where folks have these stretchy connective tissues, That seems to be probably not only a comorbidity that can kind of exacerbate some POTS symptoms, but likely is a risk factor for developing POTS in the first place. Um, And so patients with that comorbidity may have uh, joint pain, they may have subluxations, um, and that can sort of aggravate our attempts at reconditioning uh, getting trying to treat the deconditioning component that we'll get to a little bit later on when we talk about treatment. Other comorbidities would be mood disorders, anxiety, depression. Um, people feel poorly. Um, it's easy to understand how one could get uh, depressed. Um, many of these patients have a long journey to get diagnosed. Um, it It takes quite some time um, for them to get a, a formal diagnosis, and that can lead to um, some anxiety over symptoms, and um, and um, and so important to recognize uh, uh, that that piece if present. And then the other kind of major comorbidity that we see is mast cell activation uh, syndrome, is what it's called at present. Mast cells, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, are allergy cells in the body. And there is this relationship between um, POTS, between some forms of dysautonomia and overactivation, it seems, of these mast cells. And so basically, it seems as though with autonomic instability, there's mast cell irritability and they will release their mediators more readily. So, people may report more frequent allergies, more medication intolerances, uh, other features of mast cell activation may be hives, itchy skin, diarrhea, um, uh, sometimes uh, angioedema uh, can occur. And so, this is an important uh, comorbidity that can be seen in some POTS patients. Some people have described the, the conditions POTS, EDS, and mass cell activation as a quote-unquote trifecta of uh, conditions um, that uh, sort of, um, you know, have particular uh, manifestations and commonly uh, uh, occur together. Wow. Um, it's, yeah, it's since, yeah, frankly, pretty grim for some
1: patients. Like, I can understand now that it's not just lightheadedness and, and so forth. So, just to touch upon that, um, just to recap. So, the autonomic nervous system, my interpretation here is that it's obviously like this sensory and um, is it effective, like, you know, motor control? It's like sensing the environment and also controlling your homeostasis. And if that's somewhat dysregulated, it's easier for these other conditions to, or it's not having the regulatory control in those conditions. And that's sort of like a, a vicious cycle that that could worsen the the dysautonomia is that sort of makes sense in terms of the nervous system is unable to sort of dampen these
0: conditions yeah that's um uh, that's uh that's well said um the uh the autonomic nervous system it of course influences these different systems but is influenced by them as well. Um, We know, just for example, that the frequency of syncope, of fainting in migraineurs is much higher than in individuals who don't have a history of migraines. Um, So again, that may speak to this relationship between some of these conditions and the the autonomic nervous system. It may speak to that sort of role as the, the check engine light, if you will, Um, And then there's also an important relationship, and I think this is where maybe better understanding what's happening with COVID may shed some light in these areas, but, um, and I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, patients with POTS have a higher prevalence of having autoimmune disorders themselves, and so there's this relationship between having an autonomic nervous system that's unstable and either having or developing autoimmune conditions. So just for example, what are some of the numbers? 20% of POTS patients will have another autoimmune condition. Wow. Um, and it's most commonly Hashimoto's or or celiac disease, but they often go together. Um, I'm sure your, your listeners will be familiar with ANA uh, autoantibodies, which, you know, are not un- infrequently elevated to a mild degree in the general population. Um, 25%, though, of POTS patients have an elevated ANA. So, it sort of speaks to this sort of predilection for having um, autoimmune uh, uh, disorders. And so, there uh, there has been interest in, you know, POTS just in and of itself as potentially being an autoimmune disorder, which we can um, talk about in a bit when we talk about uh, uh, pathophysiology, but also just this relationship between having an infection and then developing an autonomic disorder. Um, you know, again, this is something that we see in upwards of 50% of POTS patients where they've had some sort of infection that precedes their, the developments of their autonomic disorder so nobody understands these relationships yet well and what's happening mechanistically um but i think important things to recognize and and obviously important to study yeah so just on that i'm
1: i'm curious and it was mentioned briefly in some of your papers that uh, i'm wondering if this can be compared pots so this allodynamic can be compared to another condition it seems like it's i don't want to say been neglected it's probably it was discovered late um, but it feels like there's a dearth of research and I could be wrong and um, but maybe that's why you're advocating it um, and is it also because it's this sort of mystery and it sort of covers all these different you know is it um, more of a, a cardiology thing is it a more of a neurology thing can you just describe and confirm or if you is there a bit of a lag it feels with um understanding of disordernomia
0: and, and, and yeah what's the some of the reasons there yeah, great, great question. Um the uh there absolutely is uh there's been a dearth of of uh of funding, um, research funding, and that is part of the reason I think um we're in the situation where we're at. But you mentioned, I think, a really critical piece, which is that it, these are this is a multi-system disorder. And so um i'm sure we could probably identify other medical conditions that sort of fall between the different specialties and so it can be difficult when you know there may be a a neurological piece or a cardiology piece or an immunology piece and who really has ownership of it and that can be a problem from a uh, from a sort of driving research standpoint but also from a funding uh, standpoint where you know, like funding through, like, in the United States through the National Institute of Health is in certain, you know, silos. Mm. So that is that is a problem that it, it's, you know, the fact that it is multi uh, systemic is obviously a problem, but that also has impact from a research perspective. Um, the history of POTS, we might just want to talk about that for a minute or two, because it is interesting, and it does speak to this issue a little bit. And actually, is kind of I, I think important also when we think about the post COVID dysautonomia um, pots. We think was probably its first description was during the Civil War, and um, it was recognized in Civil War soldiers in the United States, and um, and the. The individual who described uh, this was uh, was Dr. DaCosta. He actually started a unit at a Philadelphia hospital to treat Civil War soldiers. Um, and he's really the first one to, to sort of get the credit or the blame uh, for describing uh, POTS. He didn't call it POTS at the time, of course. He called it uh, 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 irritable heart. Um, but he describes in a large series that he published in 1871 of, of Potts patients. And then there were a number of series from then into the early uh, part of the 20th century. And then there was a huge series described in the, the UK in world war one with world war one soldiers. And, um, again, recognizing the same thing that Dr. DaCosta reported in Civil War Soldiers. And ultimately, it was decided at the time that this was more of a constitutional issue, that these soldiers were not tough enough, and that they were kind of constitutionally weak. There's this idea of this neurasthenia, that They had constitutional issues and that it wasn't a legitimate medical sort of problem if you will and so that's had influence that had influence subsequently and um potts really wasn't formally identified um until the 1990s um when uh, a series out of mayo clinic in rochester first reported it so there's been this sort of idea amongst some that this isn't a real medical condition, that this may be, um, some people think it may be just psychogenic or, you know, functional, or um, that uh, it's just a result of, let's say, post-viral deconditioning, this idea that um, this is not something that is worthy of study uh you know studying these these mechanisms in detail and so that has had an impact on um you know research understanding uh funding etc
1: okay yeah, that makes a lot of sense um and obviously it's probably delayed yeah the, the uh, research thanks for that so yeah let's talk about some of the pathophysiological factors we you've covered some around there's it can be a trigger from some sort of trauma virus um, the autonomic nervous system uh, we just touched upon it then earlier like cardiovascular function and uh, uh, I hadn't hadn't really thought about this system for a long time the Rengen angiotensin system um, this it, it, this is where I think that Raj your colleague has done a fair bit of work and was a real pioneer in identifying some of the um, sort of dysfunctional areas in the system. So can you overlay the cardiovascular system with your area of expertise, the neurological system in, in POTS?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, if it's okay, I'm just going to first start with um, how POTS is currently subtyped. Yeah. And then that'll help a little bit with the some of how the mechanisms have been thought about to this point. So, um, in general, um, the autonomic centers who are seeing POTS patients and have autonomic testing will try to subtype POTS patients into one of two, perhaps three, different uh, subgroups. Um, one is called a neuropathic form of POTS, and basically, that's where the autonomic nerves, you know, responsible for controlling, for blood pressure control, and in some instances sweating and other things, they become impaired, and so there's denervation that leads to excessive pooling in the extremities and in the the gut, the splenic circulation, so that blood flow doesn't get back up to the right side of the heart, mm. and as a result, the heart. Is tachycardic to compensate for that. That's called a neuropathic form of POTS and again that's an autonomic neuropathy, a a denervation of the autonomic nerves. Now the second type is called hyperadrenergic and what this refers to is that the activity of the sympathetic nervous system, the fight-or-flight part of the nervous system, the adrenergic system is excessive. So autonomic system gets challenged. The sympathetic system responds in an excessive way. So these individuals, they, when they stand up, they may not only have an excessive increase in heart rate, their blood pressure may also go up when they stand up or get tilted up. They may be more likely to be more sweaty. They may be more likely to have you know, to feel tremulous when they're up and about, and that's probably as a result of a larger number of circulating catecholamines in the bloodstream that sort of lead to people feeling sort of more jittery, if you will. Um, And so that's the hyperadrenergic form of POTS. And then the third subtype that um, we think about is a low blood volume subtypes, some people have called it a low flow uh type of pots, and this is where um a little bit the uh the idea of a perturbed uh renin aldosterone angiotensin uh system sort of comes in now the just before I go into that real quick, what I would say is is that at this point there's recognizing these different systems there's no evidence that it changes outcome yeah okay that was a that's this point so i think for your you know your clinicians who may be saying oh you know what do i need to do here in these patients um i wouldn't so much you know be focused on okay do i have to treat people a lot differently i do think the most you know, it is important as a clinician to try to see what that blood pressure and heart rate is doing when somebody gets, stands up or gets tilted up. Because if somebody is, you know, if they have a higher blood pressure when upright, they're probably hyper And then those are the people where we might use, we could talk about it in a bit, but we would use certain treatments like beta blockers, for example, mm-hmm. to lower the blood pressure and the heart rate. That's the one caveat. Aside from that, um, sort of identifying these different subtypes, it doesn't actually really change our management at this point. So as a clinician who you know, maybe doesn't have all of these tools to try to figure out which subtype, I would just work on getting people treated as best as possible based upon clinical features and not so much stress on these different subtypes. Yeah. But I just wanted to say really that, that. Thank you. That um, That's an important consideration. But the interesting thing, so it's, a, it's an area of some controversy, this idea that um, many POTS patients will have low blood volumes, and in spite of these low blood volumes, renin and aldosterone, um, in some studies have been shown to be inappropriately low. And the reason for that is not understood. Um, You typically, as your audience may know, but when there's a drop in blood volume, our system should trigger um, an increase in renin, which then triggers the angiotensin system. And then ultimately that triggers aldosterone. for reasons unclear in POTS patients, the renin, renin and aldosterone levels are um, low in spite of patients with POTS having low blood volume. Um, so the reason for that is unclear. Now the other, the other interesting aspect of things, and I suspect this is going to get more attention as we try to understand what's happening with COVID is the angiotensin system because there are some studies that suggest that angiotensin 2 is elevated in POTS patients. Right. Angiotensin 2 is a vasoconstrictor. And um, interestingly, it's, um, it's metabolized by angiotensin converting enzyme 2, type 2, which is the target in COVID. So it's interesting to think about now, is there a relationship potentially between this system and, you know, post-COVID symptomatology? Now, this is a little bit controversial because um, some folks don't believe that angiotensin 2, in some of the earlier studies, it's unclear as to whether that was what was actually measured or whether um, okay. it was one of the other forms of angiotensin. But I think an interesting area to think about and as we think about, you know, what might be having happening with post COVID, uh, related pots and dysautonomia. Yeah. Thank you. Very, very interesting and
1: (laughs) intriguing and convoluted like this, uh, whole, whole, uh, condition. So, um, oh, just quickly as well. Um, it seems like there is some sort of genetic component to it because it does run in families. Um, and is it with the autoimmune link as well? Can you just describe, uh, yeah, some of the the genetics or the the connection there?
0: Yeah, um, there definitely is a significant genetic component. It's probably not at the, once we get a heck of a lot smarter and understand this better, it's probably going to be complicated. Um, There's only been one gene in one family that's been identified, and that was with a, a norepinephrine uh, transporter in one family, I believe, actually, in Australia. Um, and um, and those individuals had a hyperadrenergic form of POTS, like you might oh. imagine. There was yep. too much norepinephrine um, circulating through the system. Um, there's been interest, actually, in epigenetics and... That, um, uh, and that system, that transport mm-hmm. system. So that's an area that some folks are looking into. But you're you're right. There is a strong genetic component, and um, and it's unclear as to what what are the factors there. Um, uh, ehlers Stanlow syndrome can run in families. And the hypermobile form of EDS, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that we see, generally genetic testing for that is negative, right. but there undoubtedly are genes that we haven't identified. So that's a part. As you mentioned, many of the folks have autoimmunity. So that's running through the families as well. And then um, there's the part where the autonomic nervous system is vulnerable, presumably on a genetic basis. Yeah. And nobody knows what that is at this point, but it's. It's it's certainly important. I, I'm getting to a point now where I quite literally, I, I'm i on, I have some families where I'm seeing the third generation wow. involved with, you know, multiple family members um, going down to the, you know, out through three generations. Um, so it is, it is frustrating that we haven't been able to sort of put more resources into figuring out what genes are involved.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now you touched upon some of the
0: treatments, and uh, yeah, I'd like
1: to explore that a little bit more. Firstly, um, before we get into the treatment, similar to the the subtyping, from a, a like a treatment management perspective, is it relevant to know whether it was like head trauma or a viral infection? Like, um, once it's triggered, you can't sort of undo that, like you know, with antivirals or anything like that. Is there any any utility in knowing the potential sort of causes when it comes to management?
0: That's that's an, an excellent question. Um, at this point, it doesn't influence um, management. Um, however, um, that may change with all of the COVID-related POTS research that's happening right now. So, for example, um, one of one of the clinical trials, there's a multi-site clinical trial looking at an immune modulatory agent in post-COVID pots, and so um, the idea, at least in some of those cases, is that there may be persistent post-viral immune system activation that an immune modulator may impact, mm-hmm. um, but that's for you know these clinical trials to ultimately tell us but to answer your question no it doesn't um at this point you identify the presence of autonomic dysfunction i would say again important to sort of look at what the blood pressure and the heart rate is doing with those postural vital sign measurements and then sort of target the therapy based upon that so for example um Oftentimes, following a viral illness, patients may have, it's possible, in my opinion, this is true, but I think we're lacking data. Oftentimes, if you can see those patients early enough, they may be more likely to have lower blood pressures in the the beginning of the condition. So as clinicians, we may be more likely to use measures to try to bump up the blood pressure, to augment blood pressure, and then lower heart rate that way. In those individuals um uh, with concussion um i would keep in mind we've had concussion patients who can have very low blood pressures as well um so in addition to the fast heart rates following concussion so it's just important to not just pay attention to the tachycardia that these folks get but also to what's happening with blood pressure okay um and what well,
1: have how does treating like the autonomic and the cardiovascular phenomenon of pots does that have any bearing on those other comorbidities like migraine and um yeah, chronic fatigue and so
0: forth? Yeah. Um it's a um the goal is um to sort of stabilize autonomic um uh the autonomic system get it more stable, and um, it oftentimes will lead to an improvement in headaches and those where that's a component. Um, of course, one of the goals is to cut down on palpitations, the orthostatic intolerance, which is the you know the uncomfortable um, uh, upright symptoms that patients have. We haven't talked about brain fog. Brain fog is a common symptom mm-hmm. in, in POTS patients. Um, so we're trying to influence that if we can. And then, yes, the, the the fatigue ultimately. The other thing that we haven't talked about is that we probably should is, you know, what is the natural history? Do these people yeah. get better? Um, and um, probably not surprising to you and, probably frustrating to your audience, there actually isn't great, there isn't great data on this. Um, So I tell patients, um, this how I see it, is there's probably about 20 to 30% of people who are going to get a lot better. And they're going to get a lot better with what we call lifestyle measures and may not need much in the way of medications to help them get better. And then another third or so where they're gonna get a lot better, but it's gonna take some work, a lot of treatment. And then there's another third where um, it's just a, it's a slog. They have chronic symptoms that um, are, they're just difficult to impact favorably Mm -hmm. and patients are just horribly disabled by, um, by symptoms. And I'll tell you, when I first started seeing these patients back um, early in my career, the people would get told, "Oh, you're just going to grow out of this," and um, the field has stopped saying that now because okay. it really is unfair. It's yeah. not true. Yeah. Uh, and it sets up, I, I think, expectations for patients and providers that is uh, is is not at all helpful and and not reality at this point at least. So. Yeah, okay.
1: Thank you. And so, just to some of the lifestyle things, or well, um, i was surprised, but it's not that surprising when you think about it. Like uh, adequate hydration, and and it sounds like a pretty uh, liberal dose or uses of um oral sodium is cornerstone for some of these patients. Can you describe that? And um, yeah, there's any are there any concerns about um, obviously a large intake of sodium?
0: yeah um so we we talk to our patients, who there's really six things that we focus on. Um, the first, as you said, is is sodium, and that's really to try to tackle that, the low blood volume, which is present in so many of of the patients. Um, and so we shoot for um upwards of five grams of sodium a day and ask them to get that in and through. Uh, Food, through drink. Um, Some patients will use salt tablets and get it in that way. One trick for the clinicians is um, what you can check is a 24 hour urine sodium. And it's a good sort of, it provides a good estimate as to how they're doing with uh, salt and fluids. So what you look for there is you look for them to put out about two liters. In 24 hours of urine, and then you shoot for 170 millimoles per 24 hours of sodium. So that's what you're looking for, and so that can be a good measure as to mm-hmm. how people are doing with their salt and fluids. So it's a good way to sort of get an estimate as yeah. to what the blood volume looks like. And I like doing that because you know you sometimes people will say, "Well, I'm I'm mm-hmm. drinking enough and I'm getting in enough sodium." This is a way of actually testing and so um for uh for your clinicians um that can be super helpful fluids uh we ask them to get in 90 ounces of fluid we ask them to for some of that to contain sodium and again it's just sort of blood volume expansion it can be anything that has sodium um i won't i'm not sponsored by any products, so i'm gonna i'm not i'm not gonna mention any but um it's whatever people get, uh, sort of it works for them yep. in terms of ha- having sodium. Um, uh, other lifestyle measures include compression. So um, all of us, whether we have an autonomic disorder or not, when we stand up, we have blood pooling in the legs and in the abdomen. So compression, particularly across the thighs and across the abdomen, where all, much of the blood pooling occurs can be helpful. So tights, um, products that compress those areas can be helpful. Um, And then exercise is a cornerstone. We ask for them for those reasons to strengthen leg and abdominal muscles, and then engage in an aerobic exercise regimen. I've started describing for our patients that the job of exercise is to get rid of the deconditioning that develops in almost everybody who develops POTS. It's, it's, it's super important. But also importantly, is it's an opportunity for biofeedback. Mm. Basically, it trains the system how to respond to a stressor and um, in a controlled way. So, you know, rather than going to the grocery store and standing in line waiting to, you know, to check out, which is hard on the autonomic nervous system. You can go onto the gym and and challenge it in a controlled way and sort of right. reteach it how to behave itself. And so that's kind of how we sort of think about the exercise. The other thing is um some people benefit from elevating the head of the bed up four to six inches, and sometimes that can improve the autonomic instability that can occur at night um during sleep, yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. yeah, I never thought about the
1: the exercise like that as sort of a hormetic stressor to to condition the body. Um, just one last thing. I only saw a, a brief reference to it in your papers. Um, it's something that yeah, I, I find fascinating. I've done a couple of podcasts on is this, this vagal nerve stimulation. Um, I think the pioneering work of Dr. Kevin Tracy around um the inflammatory reflexes, yeah, I think it's amazing. um, but maybe it's the tip of the iceberg in what we can potentially do with. Electroceuticals, or who knows what in the future, or or pharmaceuticals. Um, You mentioned there's a could be a potential for vagal nerve stimulation in in treating these patients. Yeah,
0: it's an exciting area. There's interest in both gastroparesis um, and in POTS patients. Um, It hasn't. um, I don't think we have the results of any clinical trials uh, yet, Um, but it's an exciting area. I look forward to the day when, um, you know, hopefully I, I am able to, to see this happen where I can talk about the autonomic nervous system in terms of potentially treating autoimmune or autoinflammatory Mm. disorders. And, uh, I think it's an exciting area. Um, we're definitely interested in it, um, uh, in both GI dysmotility and, um, and in, in POTS patients and potentially other forms of dysautonomia.
1: Yeah. Okay, watch this space. Um, and hopefully, yeah, there's um, uh, a burst of activity with research and funding and so forth. So, yeah, perhaps just to, to um, wrap up, what are you optimistic for or hopeful for in the future? Where do you see this field going? Um, and yeah, uh, and the Dysautonomia International Organization, maybe just describe that and your mission there. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, so it is an exciting time. If if you um, put uh, pots in PubMed, you'll see that there's been a, 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 a just kind of an explosion in papers, which is good and encouraging. Um, and then, you know, I, I guess if there's something beneficial that comes from COVID. Um, It's an increase in funding to study POTS and other forms of dysautonomia, other forms of what happens with long COVID, post-COVID syndrome. So I think reasons to be optimistic are there. And and also, though, getting other people to think about this um, and collaborating, hopefully, across uh, specialties. Because I can tell you, as um, one of the few autonomic neurologists working in this area, um, it feels pretty lonely at times, and, and um, you know, progress happens through, um, you know, working colleagues, not only other clinicians in other areas, but also with scientists, and hopefully we can collaborate and tackle and better understand some of these issues. This International, an important um, organization, um, patients all over the world, providers all over the world contributing. And they've played a key role in in advocating um for patients and actually funding trials um in this space, yeah, lovely, as you mentioned, the start it
1: probably wasn't by plan, but I think um in life serendipity and chance and luck and whatever um puts you in different paths and directions, and I'm glad it's sort of you've landed in this direction because uh yeah um sounds like a really important cause, and it's yeah, I'm grateful that you're shedding light and uh, um yeah treating patients as well so thank you for your time and i just want to call it it's, it's late on a friday afternoon after a long week of work and meetings and everything you've been yeah very gracious with your time and appreciate um yeah you you joining me i'm really really thankful thank you
0: Yeah, no thank you nathan i'm happy to uh happy uh pr- a privilege to be able to contribute and um thanks for doing this it's uh super important and uh um I'm happy to uh, feel free to email me. Um, I'm happy to try to answer uh, uh, questions if you know. Even even if your audience wants to reach out, I'm, I'm 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 available. So yeah, fantastic. I might check in with you in the future.
1: It's um yeah, really incredible um, work you're doing and, and very interesting and very important. So um thanks again. All right, thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare
0: professional for medical advice.